What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back, my friends, to another week of The Midnight Myth. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed these last two episodes because I think thematically we're going to continue the discussion started in the last two. And I'd like, if it's okay with you, Laurel, um, share with everyone kind of the frame of reference, the general mind or headspace that I've been in that has inspired me to tackle this episode. Is that okay? Would you say the headquarters you've been in? Sure, that works. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, that wasn't the word I was going to use, but it works perfectly. Go ahead. So I think it's undeniable that the world is changing and changing rapidly. Um, I think there are these huge forces at play that are accelerating and changing the shape of what it means to be a person alive today. And I do think this is a global phenomenon. Because I think the changes that are happening are happening globally. So I think what it means uh, to be a citizen of planet Earth or a citizen of a country like America is starting to radically take new shape and new form. I think that is ultimately very anxious and very um, unsettling because many of us don't like the shape and form that we see things are migrating into. Because of this... I wanted to focus on a broader theme, and that broader theme being change. Wonderful. And then from that, find the Midnight Myth lens on how to discuss change in this episode. And I think inspired by the last two episodes, I really did want to stay in the Pixar family for this episode. For this reason, I wanted to stay on change on the micro level not the macro level. I wanted to see a story that took an individual and discussed what they're going through, how they're changing, what makes them change, and a way that hopefully can help me internalize the changes that I'm seeing in my own life. I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah, before we jump in on that note, which I think is wonderful... Um, This is The Midnight Myth, the podcast where we talk about pop culture and all of the mythological, historical, and philosophical roots that it has. And if you're enjoying what you hear, we would love for you to get in touch with us. We are on social media. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, and we're on Facebook. Also, head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, to learn more. 
And uh, make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher if you haven't yet, and leave us a rating or a review. But from here, how do we get to what we want to talk about tonight? This idea of change on the micro level rather than the macro, the best way in, especially through Pixar, in my opinion, is through Pixar's rendition of the or the transformation of the classic coming-of-age story that it presents in Inside Out. Yeah, I think Inside Out is the perfect piece because, A, we're talking about Pixar, um, and we both love Pixar. It also happens to be that I just saw Inside Out for the first time this week, so it's very fresh in my mind. And, um, you know, the movie came out in 2015. It made, like, half a million dollars in the box office. So it was like a smash hit. It's a story about a girl half named a billion, half a billion. I yes. was like, that's not very much. Yes. I'm sorry. All. Half a billion. Thank you for <laughs> correcting me. Um, it's a story about a girl, Riley going through changes in her life, you know, and it uses the lens of Riley's mind and the biological mechanisms of emotion that are governing her behaviors through inside her mind. It's like so crazy. This is a kid's movie. It, it is insane. It personifies her, her five basic emotions, those being joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust, and turns them into fully fleshed out characters who sit behind a console and determine her every move. Uh, so it's a fascinating look inside the heads of one young woman and inside the heads of all of us to see kind of what forces are at play uh, pulling our strings and a really interesting way to introduce neuroscience and emotional theory to young people and old people alike. So I want to talk about a particular philosophical lens that I am approaching this, this movie and I'm not approaching it with the lens dogmatically. So that is, I want to approach it with the philosophical question is the universe deterministic? So if you're not familiar with that term, deterministic and deterministic philosophies say that every aspect of life is governed by core physical attributes. And if we could understand all those attributes, we could understand all of reality. These are the scientific paradigms that got us things like Newton's laws of motion, for example. And they postulate that if every variable is quantifiable and you can calculate it, that we could know every outcome to everything. Yeah. In other words, the world, the universe is determined by basic principles. And in that, in that world of determinism, things like free will are an illusion. They're an illusion because who you are and who you're going to be is set up by the chemicals that interact in the, the, the universe that you live in and they, and they react. So like, for example, I step on a nail it hurts my foot, I scream, ow. In a deterministic world, even things like what type of ice cream I like, what type of profession that I'll be in, are all governed by these core you know, physical attributes, these physical laws, these scientific properties, and that there is no actual choice. I'll give you another analogy used by my uncle, who is a determinist, and he's also a scientist and a doctor. And he says... Imagine that the universe is just a billiards game and all you are is the cue ball bouncing into the other cue balls. And it's all at random 
and none of it has any actual inherent meaning, and it's all based upon reaction. So that's my lens that I want to start. Like, is that a theory that holds up or does not hold up through the lens of inside out? So that's my my intro point. That's really interesting. Um, and I don't know if I would have ever approached inside out from the lens of determinism, which I think is a fascinating way to get in. Cause as soon as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, determinism essentially says that if you had a computer big enough, like the size of deep thought, you could write the algorithm for the entire future until the end of time, because everything is a, is a dominoes game. It's a, it's a house of cards. You can watch it all happen, um, based on scientific principles, uh, and we kind of get that with, um, you know, the characters pulling the strings behind Riley's mind and behind all the other characters' mind, as though there are little cogs inside every single one of us who are all machines, whose buttons are being pushed in reaction to uh, the the pushing of buttons on the other side. So there is kind of a, an interesting question that floats around with Inside Out about whether or not we have free will in this universe or we're just having uh, you know, our emotions and our behaviors manipulated by biological forces. It gets a little complicated when we personify those forces, though. So Inside Out takes that concept and really complicates it by introducing characters like Joy and Sadness uh, and the rest of the gang who also have complex inner lives. Uh, so I think it, that's a, a really interesting question to delve into because I don't know that we get a straight answer, but maybe we'll find out that we do. Well, yeah, I guess my first question is in this, you know, inquiry into Inside Out is, does Riley have free will? Does Pixar, does the movie Inside Out um, answer that question? Woof. I mean, huge, huge question. Um, I, I would say no. It's yeah. Actually, it's pretty straightforward. She doesn't. You know, at no point do we ever see a consciousness that is Riley that's not made up of smaller parts mm-hmm. that make the decisions for her. You know, I think the, the movie straightforward, very bluntly, asserts Riley doesn't have free will. Her emotions are just reacting. And when they aren't working in concert and when the emotions aren't working in unity, then she is not working in a concert or in unity. When she becomes emotionally unstable and um, I know emotionally unstable can mean like someone who's like ready to go. I don't mean that, but when she, she loses joy and sadness and she's unbalanced and anger and disgust and fear are governing her behaviors. She clearly doesn't have a choice. At no point does Riley say, do we see any consciousness that is Riley that goes, I want to do this because I want to do this. It's all fear hit a button or disgust hit a button or anger twisted a light bulb into the console and now she needs to run away because they can't figure out what Riley should do. So I think it it comes out pretty clearly on the side of there is no free will. So I... I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I do do think you're... I I don't know if that's the truth. I do think you're right in in that reading of it. If you're reading it um, like you're inside the world of Pixar and Inside Out and that's literally how our emotions work. That is what the movie is saying. Um, But my pushback is that, of course, our emotions are not little people inside our brains. Um, That our emotions are synapses firing 
but that even in this context where joy and sadness and, and fear and everybody seem to have their own internal motivations that cause them to, um, you know, pursue uh, personal goals, they're all part of Riley. They're all uh, an interconnected web of, uh, of things inside Riley that she leans on. And so our, our emotions are not little people, but our emotions are core to what makes up our personality. Uh, so I don't know that I, would, that I would say that the movie says we don't have free will. Um, I think the movie says that sometimes it can be helpful in learning to manage our emotions, which we have the power to do, um, by imagining them as little people on a journey. So that, that would be my pushback to that. But I, that's kind of me playing devil's advocate because I think that your reading of it is also equally valid um, and a fascinating way to look at the story. You know, and that's a, the interesting thing about this movie is because it, it can be read from so many different ways. From the lens of a deterministic universe, uh, joy, sadness, disgust, fear, anger are just personifications of chemicals happening in the brain that react to external stimuli. Right. That's one potential metaphor. Um, your metaphor, though, is that you know these are representations of a core personality and that they represent the choices that people make based upon the external stimuli that they see right. and they interact with, and it teaches us how better to govern our emotions. Yeah, and... And when we are in emotional turmoil, it's not because the synapse that creates joy or the neural connections that create joy went away on a hero's journey. It's because we are not managing our other emotions in this way or this way, uh, and because we have to learn to balance them again, whether that is through meditation or jogging or punching a pillow or taking medication. Whatever that is for us, it's something that we have uh, some degree of control or influence over. It's very ancient Greek of you in the respect that <laughs> it almost, I, I almost get the sense that you're saying that there is the emotional part of the brain and the rational part of the brain. And that very they, platonic, yeah. they are at tug and pull at all times. And the rational part and the emotional part, um, they, they don't coexist. And we rationally need to control the emotions, which are inherently not the rational part. I, I get a little sense of that. Like you didn't say that, yeah. but I get a sense that when you talk about how we can control the emotions, you're saying that the emotions are a different part right. of the we. Yeah. That and the I, we need to, <laughs> you know, like. I don't necessarily mean to say that those are separate um, because, and I'm not, you know, an emotional psychologist and I'm not a, an expert on, um, you're looking at me like you had no idea I wasn't an expert. Well, no, you but showed I mean, me your fake degree. People, um, people come to us for our yeah. analysis and we delve into lots of subjects, but almost always on a surface level. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that's, that's something that merits further, um, further discussion and research is the, um, you know, the value of that platonic philosophy that says there's a rational mind and an emotional mind, one regulating the other. And then the philosophy that it's all completely intertwined. Um, which I think, yeah, I think I would be interested in looking into further for a future episode. And just to back up, when you say the platonic for uh, those listening, we mean a la Plato. Plato came up with a theory that there is the rational part 
and the emotional part of the mind and yeah. that they are, are at odds and that Plato would argue that the, the happy mind life is higher or the good life is where the rational life controls the emotional life. Yeah. You know, which is kind of different from American culture today who says that kind of like the character joy, that the best value, the highest good life, the most happy we could be is when we are experiencing the most joy, e.g. pleasure that we can experience at any point in time. And that the emotion of joy is what should govern us. Yeah. And what I find great about this movie is that it counters that saying that no, just one emotion joy is not enough to have a full and complete life. You do need to let sadness control the console from time to time. Yeah. That ultimate metaphor is just freaking beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I, for a little bit of context for why we're really talking about this this week, apart from the, um, you know, jumping into that theme that we've been meditating on is that I, uh, we're getting married in October and I had my hair and makeup trial on Sunday and somebody was like, you should cry in that makeup to see if it holds up. And I was like, well, I guess we have to watch inside out because this is a movie that evokes the most just visceral, like, like deep in your bones tears, uh, of any movie I've ever seen. There's something that touches a really, really inner part of you, uh, when you watch this movie, because it's, it's a subject that's so rarely brought up in any piece of art, especially a mainstream piece of art, which is the idea that it's okay to be sad. Uh, and I'm getting a little misty talking about it sometimes, but sometimes it's good and helpful to be sad and helps you embrace emotional complexity in a society that is built on forcing people to be happy most of the time or saying happiness is the ideal. So this kind of leads me into the lens that I want to bring to Inside Out as well. Great. Do it. Let's hear it. Awesome. So it's, we said it before, it's kind of nuts that Pixar was like, let's make a movie for kids that's about uh, like neural, what, what? Neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot words. My synapses weren't firing for, properly. For anyone that wants to know, a neurotransmitter, in the most layman terms, they are chemicals that are released in your brain through um, uh, places in your brain called synapses. And it is thought that these are the chemicals that which govern most of our emotions. So, for example, serotonin produces happiness. Right. Um, neuropinephrine produces like ecstasy and joy. And so that one of the thoughts of the, this movie is that they're seeing these neurotransmitters personified. Yeah. That's so like, like neuroscience 101. Yeah. That's probably not correct at all. Right. So Pixar is like, let's make neuroscience accessible and fun for young people, which is wild. Um, and a crazy premise that they ran with. What if your emotions were, um, adorable little gremlins who live inside your brain and press buttons. Um, and so in this effort to make a really, really complex idea accessible to all of us, lay people who are not neuropsychologists and the like, um, they layered it with some really interesting and core pieces of uh, like historical and classical literature devices so I'm really interested to kind of break apart the story structure and see how it's intertwined with theme in Inside Out 
because it takes something so difficult to understand and brings it back to the first stories we ever told. Love it. Let's let's dive right in. I think that's awesome. And I think that will also help shed some light on my very complex and heavy philosophical theme. Yeah, about a Pixar movie. Why not? Why not? Why not? So the first thing I want to introduce um, is the microcosm and the macrocosm. So these two words, microcosm, of course, means little world or small, tiny cosmos. Uh, macrocosm means large world, big cosmos. Uh, and they are two opposing units. And this was first theorized by ancient Greek philosophers. This shows up in Plato and Socrates uh, and even before. But this is an idea that there is us in our little world and we are a, a tiny unit by ourselves and then we are part of this larger thing which is the cosmos and yet we correspond to it. Uh, so everything on earth has a sort of blown up correspondent in the cosmos and all the way down. So there are levels of correspondences between uh, the scale of things. And this is something that kind of makes its way into literature, especially in Shakespeare, where you have characters whose inner turmoil will manifest physically in the world around them. So it'll turn into conflict between characters, or the weather will uh, start to beat down on them, or even there will be fighting in heaven and hell, because in the microcosm there is turmoil, so there is turmoil in the macrocosm. And then even science catches up with this. So like tiny cell structures sort of, in appearance, resemble galaxies. So this is something that, that permeates Eastern religion, Western religion. It's something that we keep coming back to as theme. And in Inside Out, they do it in a really beautiful way through Riley and Joy. They show us that Riley, a human being, is the macrocosm. She is the universe. And Joy is the micro. She's the individual living on that level. So instead of saying that Riley is just part of a big universe, she is a universe. We are all universes. And even in Joy, we have a character who's got this infinitely complex motivation scheme, who's got so many emotions that she can feel. She's a universe. It blows us apart in a really beautiful way, I think. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, very, 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 I'm meditating on that. Yeah. Uh, and it layers this with another uh, a literary structure that I, I think makes it even more accessible to us, which is the coming-of-age story. And it uses that microcosm and macrocosm to give us two coming-of-age stories in one. And I would argue that specifically Inside Out conforms to a subgenre of the coming-of-age story called the Bildungsroman, which is a very long word, that in German essentially means coming-of-age story. But these stories... So the, the, the type <laughs> of coming-of-age story that it is translates to coming-of-age story. However, however... I just want to make sure I got that right. I mean, it, it translates to, like, education novel, essentially. But gotcha. it, it means coming-of-age story. But the stories that are characterized as this usually follow um, a, a stricter set of rules, that they're all about the character's moral, psychological development and spiritual uh, education. So you're rarely going to see a, a defined villain in this story. You're going to see a character against society. 
Um, and one of the things that I, I found um, to be most potent for Inside Out as a rule for the Bildungsroman is the process of maturity, which is the ultimate goal, is long, arduous, and gradual, consisting of repeated clashes between the protagonist's needs and desires and the views and judgments enforced by an unbending social order. So as we watch the coming-of-age story unfold... Okay, hold on. I, I got, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're fine. Who's the protagonist in this? Is it Joy or Riley? It's Joy, but she corresponds to Riley. And they are both going through this moral and psychological development, learning about the complexity of emotion in a world that wants them to just be happy. Joy, of course, is the embodiment of happiness. So for her to be anything but that would almost be contradictory to her character. And then when we zoom out to Riley, she's a character who's a child. And when you're a child, you are mostly happy, right? You're not bogged down by a whole lot of existential dread, hopefully, until you reach, you know, 12 or 13. Uh, but one of the things that her mom says that I think is the most crushing to me when I watch the movie. And she doesn't mean for it to be harmful, but as they're going through the turmoil of moving and her dad starting a new business and having it not work out right away, is she says to Riley, if you could just put on a happy face, uh, that would really, really help out me and your dad. Thank you for staying our happy little girl. And saying something like that to Riley signals to her that being sad is bad, that being angry is bad, that being fearful is bad. Uh, and that causes her to suppress those emotions because we have a society that tells her that smiling is right, that you should always keep a positive attitude no matter what. And we see that reflected between Riley and Joy, and that can be really harmful to suppress those emotions. Yeah, I think that is one of the central conflicts of the entire story Yeah, is that in a, a world that tells us that we should always be happy all the time, and that's what being healthy too is, it, you know, being happy, yeah. being positive. When you actually feel sad, how do you express it? And how can you, how can you manifest it? And what, if your take on that, the internal characters of the emotions are manifestations of Riley's choices, then her choice is to suppress joy and sadness because those are the things that are in direct conflict. And then what is she left with? Just anger, disgust, and fear. Acting out with emotions that are not conducive to communication. So the, the two emotions of uh, joy and sadness, however you may feel about either one, are about communication, right? So if you feel sad you can explain that you feel sad. If you feel happy, you can explain that you feel happy. Anger and fear and disgust are often highly reactionary, highly explosive, uh, and difficult to control, and especially difficult to communicate when you're in the throes of them. So if you lose those two that are all about communicating to others how you feel, then you're left with things that are impossible to break through. Interesting point, because people in the throes of anger 
rarely are self-aware enough to be like, I'm in the throes of anger exactly. and I probably should calm down. Like, or, and you know. fear, what fear <laughs> yeah. can do to your body, as useful as an emotion it is, because we evolved with fear so that we wouldn't walk out into traffic or we wouldn't, you know, like stay in a burning building. Uh, fear causes biological phenomenon to your body that you like can't in, in many cases control what your body does. Uh, and disgust too. Like you can't control yourself if you're retching from disgust. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I totally get where you're coming from with that. Um, interesting. You know, can I, can I, can I pivot to a question that I have that I think is related? Is that okay? Yes. I just, can I say one more thing really quickly? No, not at all. Um, I just wanted to say this, this idea of the Bildungsroman, the, uh, the German coming of age narrative it often begins to spur the hero or heroine on their journey, they must experience some form of loss or discontent that takes them away from the home or family setting. And that is textbook. Boom. That's exactly what happens with Inside Out with both characters. One, Riley is ripped from her home in Minnesota and taken to San Francisco and feels that as a loss of her friends and her home and her uh, you know, her existence as it was. And Joy is ripped from headquarters and has to navigate this world that she's unfamiliar with. And that's how that begins the journey of growing towards maturity. Your point. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That that's very cool. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Um, and I think you've nailed the basic structure of that like down to a T. Yeah. So here's a question that I have. I think it's it's kind of just popped into my mind. The character, oh God, what's the elephant, pink elephant's name? Bing bong. Bing bong. Who's your friend who loves to play? Bing bong, bing bong. I love All it. All right, so here's my question with that. The character bing bong sacrifices himself yeah. into oblivion, into memory damnation, mm -hmm. into disappearing from the universe so that he can get joy back to the headquarters and hopefully balance out this emotional wreck that Riley has been on. Right. Here's my question that I have that symbolically, what does that tell us? Does that mean to me in the coming of ageness and mm -hmm. understanding your lens and potentially my lens too, that it's all deterministic and there is no free will and your lens that these are manifestations of our choices. Is that saying that we all kind of have to let a part of our childhood die? Ooh, oh God, you're going to make me cry. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Well, this is... This is kind of the tragedy and the the magic of Inside Out, right? So it, it's... Hold on, let, let, let me really quick explain the plot. Yeah, yeah. So um, joy and sadness have been sucked out of the headquarters of the brain and are trying to make their way back. Disgust, fear, and anger are running the console. And they encounter Bing Bong. Riley's uh, imaginary friend. And... Joy and Bing Bong get trapped in the sort of memory oblivion. Yeah, it's wasteland where memories go to die. And they're starting to fade. And they realize that Bing Bong has this magic rocket, which is essentially just a wagon it's that is powered, powered by, by song. song. So they start singing and they're trying to shoot back into the more conscious part of the brain so they can get back. First try fails. Second try fails. Bing Bong looks and goes, I think I got this. Let's do it again. And as they are prepping the rocket and it's building up momentum, he jumps out of the rocket, which allows that joy to leave. And she looks and ping pong disappears. Yeah. And 
in that moment, the character Joy, for I think the first time in the movie, correct me if I'm wrong, actually is sad. Yeah, well, moments before when they're in the, um, you know, the memory dump, she is, she picks up a memory and watches it and sees that it's the first time that she realizes that sadness actually brought Riley some comfort and some peace and some joy. Uh, and that's the moment I think where the sort of well of, of, uh, complex emotion, uh, bubbles up in joy. And that's why Bing Bong chooses to make the sacrifice because he. He sees the transformation that she has been through and recognizes that Riley needs her more than he needs him. But that grief that she feels for Bing Bong is all the more powerful because he gave himself up for her so that she could go and restore balance to Riley's inner mind. So does that ultimately say that as we get to the ages where we're no longer little children, which is the age Riley is 11 out of being a little child into being almost a teenager in those formative years. Do we have to let part of that little childhood go? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, and tragic as it is inside out characterizes that sacrifice as bing bong as a fully realized and sentient memory of an imaginary friend who Riley used to spend her afternoons singing on a rocket with or playing in a band. Uh, and it's hard to see him go, but that is the conduit to which we, we get to experience Riley's emotions becoming more complex than they were when she was a child. So it's sort of a manifestation of letting go of childhood, childish things, um, you know, saying goodbye to the silly imaginary friend that you made up. But that's also, it's also like letting go of just being happy all the time for no reason. That's like letting go of finding the same joy that you have in kiddie pools or ice cream and finding something more complex and maybe more beautiful and more powerful on the other side. Invariably, the arrow of time does not permit us to be children for forever. Of course. Eventually, we go from small babies to little children to adolescents and then to adults. And that process necessitates change and growth. And it necessitates that aspects are left behind by virtue of the limit of the human brain and its ability to hold memories. Right. By virtue of sometimes those memories are holding you back and they need to be let go. And I think the sacrifice of Bing Bong is a sacrifice that we've all had to make at some point as we fully mature into functional adults. And that is the sacrifice of leaving youth completely behind. Yeah. And that's the start for Riley is to leave this one part of her young childhood permanently gone from her life. Right. And in the air of my lens of wondering if this movie is about determinism, I would say that it lends credence to the argument that this is not a choice. This is not something that anyone wants to or chooses to do. Wouldn't it be better to feel joy and happiness our whole life? But yet we are confronted with 
and dealing with forces outside of our control that have chosen for us. And Riley has to deal with this, as does Joy. Like, things are starting to happen to Riley that she can't control, that aren't her choice. And that is moving to a new city. That is realizing that sadness has to touch emotions, our memories, and, co- and color them with her emotion. And as we learn with this, and we grapple with this, there's a part that I often think that perhaps we focus too, too much on what the individual is and what the individual is capable of rather than realizing that there is no such thing as actual happiness. Joy will never have a console to herself in all of us. That happiness may not even be the goal anymore or should never have been the goal. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And that there is perchance a good life but that is at odds with the ideals of happiness as we are taught. We can only control what we can control, right? Uh, Riley is 11 years old and her father isn't making enough money in Minnesota or whatever it is that, or maybe he just has wanted to start this business his entire life and now he finally has enough of a nest egg to do it and to move to San Francisco and to maybe give a better life to Riley and her mom down the road. But we can't control everything, right? Sometimes we're going to be uprooted. Sometimes we're going to be sucked out of headquarters. But we can control how we react to those things. Joy can't control that Bing Bong sacrifices himself for her, which I think is a really significant stop on her hero's journey because typically in you know a classic uh hero narrative, you're going to see the main character, you're going to see the protagonist make a big sacrifice at this point in the story. And she doesn't. She lets go of a certain part of herself symbolically and allows a new part of herself in. But the person who makes the big sacrifice of their life is Bing Bong, and he does it for her. And the significance of that sacrifice propels her on to make the choice to keep going, to take the big risk to get back to headquarters. Joy can't control what's happened around her this entire time, but she can control how she reacts to it. And so can we. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe there is no control. And control is an illusion that's created. Here's where I, I would like to wrap up my my thinking on this movie because mm-hmm. um, I don't have the answers to any of the questions, so I won't sure. pretend to. But as we face unprecedented, rapid, and monumental changes happening in the macroverse, as you will, um, they will eventually, those changes will bleed down into the microverse. And... The, perhaps there's a too strong emphasis on the individual and what the individual is capable of. If the universe is governed by deterministic principles, it would have always been this way no mm-hmm. matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a freedom in that. And that freedom is not necessarily in lack of responsibility or lack of accountability. The freedom is in that the best that we can hope for is to have a good life by whatever mechanism we define that. And what I think we see Riley get closer to in finally emotionally opening up and telling her parents she's sad. 
And that's the moment where that character, whether that is by her choice or by the reaction of the chemicals in her brains or the reactions of the personified emotions in her brains, when she finally has that moment, Riley gets one step closer to a good life. And I think to me, there's some comfort in that, that 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 is attainable. And perhaps these changes that we are seeing are inevitable and they're overwhelming and they're massive and they will change what it means to be a human being or forever. Right. We're seeing that that is happening. It will change for forever, whether it is technology, climate, the decline of self-determinative democracy, like these things that are happening right now will radically reshape what it means to be a human being for generations. Uh, there is some comfort that in the face of that, there still is perchance a good life for all of us. My final thought coming from what you just said leads me back to Plato in one final core piece of literary tradition that I think is so central to Inside Out and central to how we read Inside Out, regardless of whether we think it's deterministic or about free will, is catharsis. Uh, This is an idea from ancient Greek plays and tragedy and from Aristotle's poetics about the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. It says that if you can identify strongly with a character in a play or a book or an animated movie who goes through deep pain, you might join them on the way to the other side to the light. And you can do that yourself by accessing the deep and powerful and strong emotion like sadness. You can follow it all the way to the other side to joy. Well said. And uh, I think that's all I got. That's all I got. Well, until next time, guys, be be kind. kind.